Welcome to the LDN Radio Show, brought to you by the LDN Research Trust. I'm your host, Linda Elsigood. I have an exciting lineup of guest speakers who are LDN experts in their field. We will be discussing low-dose naltrexone and its many uses in autoimmune diseases, cancers, etc. Thank you for joining us. that it's late in the afternoon it's hot in here you haven't had enough coffee yet today and I guarantee your brains hypoxic so get up just shake your hands a little bit move around a little bit get your brain going because we're gonna hit some biochemistry pretty hard oh the moans and the groans I get when I tell people that we're gonna have fun talking about biochemistry kills me so For those of you that don't know me, which is most of you, I'm Nasha's husband, (laughs) which is my only claim to fame in life. (laughs) Um, But it's also where most of my clinical understanding comes from. I'm not a clinical chemist. I'm a biochemist by training. Uh, My graduate training was in drug design. I designed uh, cancer drugs in grad school. And during grad school, the other thing that I did is I developed a biochemistry board review, which was where my honorary naturopathic degree came from. (laughs) Um, And Nash and I have been together for going on three and a half million years now. I think we're in a geological time scale at this point in our life. We just celebrated 18 years of marriage, and along the way, I've heard all kinds of crazy things that just, I'm like, come on, that can't be true. Where's Where's the evidence for that? And LDN was one of those. I'm like, what do you mean? You, you give a lower dose of a drug and it gives a different pharmacological effect? You must be kidding. So, and my title is wrong because this is a Trojan horse talk. I had no intention of ever talking about LDN today, and I'm here to talk to you just about cannabis. My background is deeply rooted in laboratory science for the last three to four years, I've been working in analysis of cannabis in Colorado. And so next year, I want to come back and give an hour-long talk on the endocannabinoid system and cannabis therapeutics to dispel all of the myths. Because if you're in a legal state, most of what you hear from people in the cannabis industry is just plain wrong. And I heard a lot of, of really horrible misconceptions today. And I I realized that there is a very important crossover between cannabis therapeutics and LDN, and that's what our focus is primarily going to be today. So, first thing I did when I heard I was going to be speaking at LDN was like, well, I don't know anything about low-dose naltrexone, and I wanted to know what do people think about naltrexone, and so I Googled it, as most people do today. And so this is from the National Multiple Sclerosis Society. I figured they're pretty benign, right? And, you know, all they really say is, we don't know, and it's off-label. Okay, great. Thanks for your help. This is probably one of the most promising therapies for MS, and this is all you can say. What's your point, MS Society, if you're not willing to take a risk to do an off-label therapy? Get out of the business, please. 
I didn't just say that out loud, did I? By the way, I've been, in, I've been investigated by the FDA for off-label selling. And what they determined was that I was using a picture of a nephron to teach doctors how to not kill kidneys with, with COX-2 inhibitors. And that was, the Pfizer reps turned me in because I was working for Merck at the time. And just so you, for full disclosure, I've, I've got about four years of experience in the pharmaceutical industry as a field sales rep, so I am highly qualified to lie to doctors. <laughs> All right, enough picking on the MS Society. They have, they probably have good intentions, but uh, enough. <laughs> All right. I'm going to try not to get too soapboxy here, but you can't really talk about opiate receptors without talking about the, the essential fatty acids and all of the downstream metabolites of the essential fatty acids. And for me, being in the cannabis industry, one of the most important essential fatty acid metabolites are the endocannabinoids. And you all know Everybody all here has a really high level of understanding with the endocannabinoid system, right? Say yes. Because if you say no, I'm going to go on for like three days about this. So what you need to know about the endocannabinoid system is that the endocannabinoid system, like prostaglandins and leukotrienes and thromboxanes and all the eicosanoids, it's built upon essential fatty acids. So when you're consuming the wrong balance of fatty acids, what, how does that influence your, your body's ability to maintain pain, inflammation, fever, and all of the other things that are associated with our fatty acid metabolites? Well, it screws it up, right? Sorry, I'm just looking at people eating popcorn. <laughs> you know you're killing your brain with those omega-6 fatty acids. <laughs> we should be having DHA treats. And why am I going to pick on DHA here? There's kind of been a theme here about neurology, right? Has anybody gotten some really great pearls over this weekend about things that you can do to improve your neurological function? I have. This has been absolutely amazing for me. I've learned a ton being here. And so number one, I want to thank everybody for being the mavericks that are willing to be in this position of using an off-label use of a drug. So thanks. And... Um, Probably the most important thing that I think I can share with you about DHA and EPA is they are the most important endocannabinoid precursors. There's one of my favorite um, endocannabinoid researchers, Oliver Manzoni in France. He has done some groundbreaking research in how dietary fat intake influences the endocannabinoid system in mice. And one of the things that he found out about omega-6 fatty acids is that an excess of omega-6 fatty acids destroys neuroplasticity that is mediated by the endocannabinoid system. And you all know that neuroplasticity is highly mediated by the endocannabinoid system, right? Because pot makes you dumb. Well, now it actually makes you more creative. But, so when we look at DHA, I think it's absolutely essential that you know that the, the endocannabinoid produced by DHA was discovered in the early understanding of the endocannabinoid system, and its name is synaptamide. Well, that sounds awesome, doesn't it? I mean, if you could take a supplement 
like DHA that could actually stimulate synaptogenesis? Good Lord, sign me up. I want buckets of that. Because we all need to be smarter, right? So what are you going to, you know, omega-6s that destroy neuroplasticity? Or do you want DHA and EPA that actually upregulate your body's ability to create new neural networks? I think I'm going to go the DHA route myself. Because I want to be smarter. And that's a big problem for me because I live with Nisha. So I just constantly am trying to figure out, oh, my God, how can I keep up with her? DHA. So you can see we've got some, some... you know, the downstream metabolites from EPA and DHA, they're involved in, in most of our homeostasis, pain, inflammation, fever, um, neurotransmission. And so there is some significant crossover, and that's going to be the theme of, of my talk today is just crossover. There are so many of these interrelationships between these different pathways that it kind of blurs our understanding of how they really work. So... Just know the whole purpose of this was so that I could glorify synaptamide, my favorite fatty acid derivative in the endocannabinoid system. But um, do keep in mind that supplementing with DHA is going to be one of the best things that you can do to complement the effects of LDN. Okay, a little pharmacology. Come on. We have pharmacists in the room. People should be, like, jumping up and down because we're talking about pharmacology. Um, So I'm a drug design chemist by training, so I naturally have to revert back to pharmacology. And one of the things that I think is important that I wanted to talk about today was pharmacogenomics. Does anybody know anything about the pharmacogenomics of LDN? I don't because the information is pretty much non-existent. But if I, and well, you have to also understand that, that this is part of, of my adult life, chasing Nisha. I have had to learn a lot of epigenetics, genomics, and pharmacogenomics because that's what we talk about. So if I were to start looking for what are the pharmaco- pharmacogenomic parameters of LDN, the first place I would start to, whoops, top button. Okay, that button. All right, so this enzyme, that's an enzyme. You guys knew that, right? That enzyme is a xenobiotic carbonyl reductase, and the reason it's so important for the pharmacogenomics of LDN is because the metabolism of LDN is primarily uh, carried out by this enzyme, And so you have the metabolite that turns out to be probably pharmacologically more important than the parent compound. The parent compound has a half-life of about four hours, but the the metabolite, uh, 6-naltrexol, has a half-life of about 13 hours. So when you think about dosing, don't think about the parent compound in this case because the parent compound, if it's primarily metabolized, it's 98% metabolized to 6-naltrexol, so why do we even care about naltrexone? Naltrexone has a half-life of about four hours, but if the primary metabolite is still active and has a half-life of about 13 hours, what should we be thinking about the half-life of 
of this as a therapeutic agent? Is it 4 or 36? Or pardon me, 4 or 13? So I think that it's really important that there has been a lot of discussion here about, you know, pulse dosing. But if you're going to pulse dose, you need to think about what is a therapeutic agent that's in, in your patient's body, right? And so I think you should reframe your thoughts about pulse dosing to a 13-hour half-life versus a 4-hour half-life. But I'm only giving you part of the information because I didn't tell you if we've done any genetic analysis on this enzyme, right? So do we really know? I guarantee you that like other xenobiotic reductases, this enzyme is going to have fast variants and slow variants, correct? So if we were to start to do, and what I'm trying to do is recruit you to start doing the studies. We need studies. So if I were to recruit you to, to give me some data on the pharmacogenomics, this is the starting point. I would want to know how these metabolism, the, the variants in the gene for this enzyme influence the metabolic rate of that gene in your patient population. Because that's going to tell us is it a four-hour half-life we're looking for or is it a 13-hour half-life we're looking for. So I want to come back next year and, and give another talk about the pharmacogenomics. We don't have the data yet, though. But we can make guesses, right? So um, last thing on pharmacology, celecoxib, ibuprofen, and naproxen are also substrates of this enzyme. So there's likely drug interactions with patients taking naltrexone with these agents. Agreed? Cool. Enough pharmacology? No, of course we're not done with pharmacology yet. I mean, we kind of have to talk about morphine, don't we? And here is one of the big learning aha moments for me is, so I, if, if I want to know about a drug that blocks another drug, because we're talking about an antagonist of the receptor for morphine, anybody know the molecule on the right here? It's clearly a relative of morphine, right? Come on, pharmacist. Nope. Worse. You could make it in your bathtub, and I'm going to teach you how to make heroin. So this is the acetylated analog of morphine that my people call heroin. How do you make it? A little catalytic acid like phosphoric acid or hydrochloric acid and acetic acid, vinegar, right? So you now know how to make heroin. Here was the thing that really took me off guard is heroin is more effective as an analgesic because it crosses the blood-brain barrier more effectively, right? I mean, that's the whole purpose of acetylating an alcohol from a drug design perspective. So if you acetylate morphine, it becomes heroin. It gets into the blood-brain barrier more effectively, so it does its job more effectively, right? That's only like 10 times more effective as an analgesic, but it's also 10 times more effective as a smooth muscle relaxant, which is why people die from heroin overdose. Anybody know the efficacy compared to 
uh, morphine of fentanyl. This is what's scary to me. Heroin just seems benign after learning this. 100 times. Would you want to give your patient a drug that's 100 times more efficacious than morphine if they have addictive, you know, if your patient has addictive tendencies? No. Does anybody know that the CEO of the makers of fentanyl was pulled, was arrested in March? That's a step forward. Okay. This is where we're going to spend most of our time. Now, when we look at how um, naltrexone works, it's, it's blocking the effects of the mu opioid receptor, and that's a pharmacological effect. Is there anything, is there any pure pharmacology, meaning does, does naltrexone just bind to that receptor? No. See, in the cannabis world, I would tell you that cannabinoids that are binding to CB1 and CB2 are promiscuous. Well, that's not very nice, is it? Well, it turns out that THC and CBD both bind to CB1 and CB2 receptors, but they also bind to uh, the transient vanilloid receptors, and they bind to op uh, mu opiate receptors. And then over here, we've got the opiate growth factor receptor. So this is one of the things that clouds our understanding of pharmacology, is we're using pharmacological agonists and antagonists to probe in organisms and cell lines how these things work, and it's imperfect. You know, in animal models, we use CB1 and CB2 knockout mice to see what happens when an organism doesn't have the receptor. But there's holes in all of these, so by the time it filters up to the clinical level, we have a lot of, oops, we didn't see that one coming, did we? And so, what I really want you to get from this is that the, these are all G-protein coupled receptors, which means that it, there are a thousand different mechanisms of phosphorylation and, you know, we've, we've got the arrestins. What happens when, you know, when you give somebody an opiate for too long, you see tolerance because the receptor gets endocytosed. Same thing happens with the cannabinoid receptors, and I think it's important for you to understand as clinicians that low-dose THC is as effective as low-dose naltrexone at upregulating receptor production. So if you are using THC clinically, make sure that, that you give your patients a THC vacation. Good Lord, that went fast. And... Um, just recognize that, like the opiate receptors, the cannabinoid receptors are going to be downregulated from chronic use. You can ha get them upregulated with low dose and taking vacations. Uh, this is this just shows the relationship between TVRP and how the arrestins are working. How when you're using um, opiates with capsaicin, you have a different level of the signaling that's going on in the, in the G-protein signaling systems. A little bit of pharmacogenomics. There is some data out there that shows that alcohol craving has genomic influences uh, that, that is, so the, let me rephrase that, the effect of naltrexone on alcohol cravings has genomic influences. And so this, 
This comes from the, from the farm, farm GKB, which is from Stanford, and they're just showing in this particular, oh my God, I did it again. They're just showing that there are genotypes that have increased alcohol cravings um, with naltrexone, and there are genotypes that have less alcohol cravings with naltrexone. So there are definitely some genetic differences in the effects of naltrexone based on uh, some of these, these um, polymorphisms in the receptors. Another polymorphism um, example in the opioid receptor. And then there's the, the TLR receptors. And, you know, the reason that this is involved in pain is because we've got, uh, you know, when lipopolysaccharides bind, we're seeing upregulation of TNF-alpha, um, some of the pro-inflammatory cytokines, and some of the immunosuppressive cytokines. And naltrexone blocks that as well. well this is uh, TNF-alpha inhibitors um, with some, and these are some of the polymorphisms, polymorphisms in the uh, TOLAC receptor. Okay, that's it. Any questions or comments you may have, please email me, linda, L-I-N-D-A, at ldnrt.org. I look forward to hearing from you. Thank you for joining us today. We really appreciated your company. Until next time, stay safe and keep well.